You're listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Good evening, I'm Emma Goswell and this is my weekend outing. Hey listen, Pride Month might have finished, but what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we stop celebrating LGBT life around here. Hell no! Right, what we got coming up? So much in the next few hours. You're going to be finding out all about Helpline for the LGBT community in Wales. And last week, do you remember, we met the awesome Ben Carpenter and talked all about adoption for LGBT people. Well, this week, you'll meet two gay men who went down the alternative route of family as we talk surrogacy. First, though, we're going to be talking to out and proud singer-songwriter Conleth Kane. Well, you may have seen him perform on BGT or X Factor, but he is not here to talk about that. Absolutely not. He's here to talk about how music for him is a form of protest and a way of celebrating being part of our LGBT community. You ready? The Weekend Outing with Emma Goswell. Virgin Radio Pride. And this is exciting. For the first time on my show, we've got an actual pop star. Yes, time to meet Conleth Kane. Conleth, how are you doing? I'm okay, Emma. I'm absolutely grand. I'm just sitting here with my herbal tea. I've just done my yoga class and I'm ready to have a good old natter with you. <laughs> it's not sex, drugs and rock and roll, is it? Like it was in the 60s. You're a proper <laughs> millennial pop star, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, 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 I do try. Well, listen, let's talk about you. Let's talk about your music, because really on this show, what I tend to do is focus on really inspiring LGBT people. I do a whole series on you know, campaigners, people that have marched the streets and fought for our rights as a community. But actually thinking about it, you know, yourself and a lot of other people have actually campaigned through their music. And would you say that you've tried to do that as an out and proud gay artist? Absolutely. And it's funny because, you know, on Facebook, you get those memories that come up and and you're able to see what happened on this particular day two or three years ago. Um, It was four years ago this weekend that I wrote Proud. It was 2017 and I was getting an opportunity to sing it at Pride in London in 2017. And uh, I wrote the song the day before I went along to sing at the event, because at the time uh, it was very much in the press that the Northern Ireland situation regarding equal marriage was very much a talking point. Mm. And I felt very, I felt, okay. I've got a platform here. I've got a stage to sing to a London audience as a Northern Irish gay singer-songwriter. And let's write something, let's just pour out onto a page what I'm feeling. And I wrote Pride in about 10 minutes at my kitchen table. And I brought it round to a friend and I said, is this, what do you think? Do you think this is, is this good? Is this rubbish? Is it cheesy? Is it, is it perfect? I don't know. And uh, my friend says, you know, I really identify with this. this you, should, you should really sing this at Pride. You should give it a go. And I did. And I remember the reaction and because the, the lyrics are really simple. It's I'm proud of who I am. I'm proud of what I see. When I look in the mirror, I see me. And it's the simplicity of the song that I think really connects with people. And since then, you know, I've had people reach out to me from all over the world, as far as Australia, America, Europe, um, people who come out after hearing Pride. And yeah. it, it, I know it's, it's, it's the most incredible, humbling feeling to 
to get a, a message on Facebook from someone at the other side of the world who you don't know, who, you know, related to your lyrics and felt an element of courage uh, to come out. Uh, it, it's, it really is something else. Like, I can't tell you the feeling. I, it's euphoric and it's really rewarding. Um, the fact that a situation that actually came out of frustration. I was so angry with Northern Irish politics. I, I had so much to get off my chest in this song and it actually just ended up helping other people, which was which was not what I expected it to do, but the That's fact incredible. that it did was a bonus. And of course you had quite a difficult childhood in Northern Ireland, didn't you? You didn't find it easy at school at all from what I've read. You know, I just think it was Northern Ireland in in the 90s growing up. It was mm. I went to an all boy Catholic school in a working class town. You know, and funnily enough, on my first non-uniform day, I wore a Spice Girls T-shirt. And what am I wearing right now? So I, <laughs> I'm looking at a lovely picture of baby and <laughs> um, Jerry and round the corner. There's Mel C. Yes. Yeah. You told me earlier, how many Spice Girls T-shirts do you own? Oh, I've got I've got loads. I have got loads. And so many people say to me, why do you love the Spice Girls? So why are we obsessed with the Spice Girls? And I actually thought about this um, because when I went to see them at Wembley in 2019, I would say out of about 75,000 people, you're looking at 50,000 LGBTQ plus community yeah. members in the audience. Yeah. And I, I think I think at the time, you know, it was the image of seeing a group of individuals and different characters being able to merge and gel and work together. And I think that there was a real symbol in that, that you didn't have to be like the person next to you to, to be able to work together. And I think that's why the Spice Girls really, really res resonated with the with the LGBTQ plus community. And did your um, classmates appreciate the Spice Girls as much and enjoy the fact that you're wearing Spice Girls t-shirts no, on non-uniform no, day? It wasn't, it wasn't a very pleasant experience, but to be honest with you, I was always, I was never fearful as a as a teenager. I I I went into school wearing the t-shirt loud and proud. I had my Spice Girls pencil case. I I I sang in the school assemblies. I didn't play football. I I I was I didn't really con confine to what the, the school expected of me or what the people around me thought I should do. I was like, no, don't like football, not playing. I'm off to listen to my Spice Girls album in the what with my Walkman in the corner. Because there must have been a lot of pressure to conform though. Oh yeah, very much so. Well, if you think about it, Northern Ireland only achieved equal marriage last year. So it's still, it's, it's a really backward part of the UK and Ireland. And it's, it's always this kind of, it's always kind of like the scapegoat, the backwater. Like I was so frustrated with people thinking, you know, oh, Northern Ireland achieved equal marriage when the Irish referendum for equal marriage went through. No, it didn't. And then you got people in the south of Ireland thinking that when the UK achieved equal marriage that Northern Ireland just automatically got it as well. Northern, Ar the Northern Ireland politics is based on division um, and as far as a party like the DUP are concerned they did everything they could up until the year 2020 to stop our community from having equal rights so if that's their attitude in 2020 you can kind of imagine what it was like for young gay people growing up in my generation it was really 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 tough and I remember looking on and uh, listening to people like Iris Robinson on the radio promoting conversion therapy and and just I, re I remember where I was I remember being in my kitchen knowing I was gay and you've got the wife of the DUP leader you know, promoting conversion therapy live on BBC Radio Ulster. And this is a huge audience, huge platform. And 
so many listeners were listening into that like myself and I just remember feeling really hurt and I think that really trickled through society I was gonna say did that filter down was there homophobia in school was there homophobia on the streets I have to say it's got a lot better and um Mm. but back back and you know you know I was called queer faggot you know a gay boy almost every day walking to school, walking home from school. I got so much anxiety walking to school, walking home from school, because at least in school, you're kind of protected. Mm. But I I remember being so fearful of the walk home because, you know, you can't control those situations or what's going to happen. And uh, there was on one occasion where I was walking with my little sister, who was 11 at the time, and I was uh, 14, 15. And I just remember... The, the trees and the bushes just rustling. I jumped this gang of lads, held me, beat me to a pulp, made my little sister watch. I was blood everywhere. It was like a scene from Jesus Christ Superstar. I was like, it was, it was awful. It was really, really traumatic. And my little sister had to carry me home. And like, I just, I'll never forget my mom and dad's face when they opened the door. And then that's when they just, you know, they, they helped me out of the school I was in. They got me into a new school. And then my, my school journey became more bearable. Did you report uh, that, though? I mean, that was a violent hate crime. Do you know something? It was... I, I can't... All of that, where that's concerned, is is quite blurred. I was still mm. at school. I, I remember recognising, I remember that it being dealt with in that respect. I remember my parents went directly to the parents of the, the teenagers who had, you know, committed the attack. Um, but yeah, that happened. I mean, and if anything, it just instilled a real fire in me to achieve my goals, my ambitions, to get out of, you know, the town and, and get over to London and pursue a, a creative direction in life. I it re- I, I remember going into bed every night thinking, I really just want to, I want to go to college in London. I want to get out of here. I want to meet friends. I want to be amongst people who I feel welcome with. I want to get into the LGBTQ community. I want to be with performing artists. So if anything, it just spurred me on to really uh, fulfill my dream. That's fantastic. And it shows just how strong you are because a lot of people could crumble in the face of that much adversity and physical violence and bullying. But it seems like you had a real innate sense that things were going to get better. Yeah, I always, I always had a positive outlook. You know, don't get me wrong. I've, I've had my down days as an adult as well, and definitely as a teenager, I didn't really have much of a social life as a teenager. That I really lacked in that department. I, you know, I didn't really have any real friends. You know, I had maybe two or three, but you know, I, I didn't have. I wasn't going out with big groups of teenagers and having that kind of regular social teenage life. I really missed out on all of that. During that time, I was really getting into what I was interested in, which was performing arts. I would spend my weekends doing, you know, the local musicals or, you know, flying to London to audition for, you know, youth theatre and stuff. So I I really had my head screwed on and I really knew what I wanted to do. And every time I got a, a, a glimpse of London and a glimpse of, you know, being able to perform over here. Anytime I went home on the plane, I was like, right, I need to get back over it. I need to hurry up and get and get my skates on and get straight back on that plane. So that was interesting, hearing all of that and that story. So how important and how poignant your song Proud really is. There's there's a lot of background going on, isn't there? There's a lot of um, your life has informed that song and it took you, you know, all those years to be a happy and proud out gay man, I guess, didn't it? Well, 
Emma, I'm really lucky that I have a supportive and loving family. And, you know, now in my in my older years, shall we say, you know, I've got a really, really strong friendship group. And I think pride was the therapy. And it was the outpouring of pain that I was harboring for so many years. Uh, the, the fact that I wrote pride so quickly and, you know, the, the, the emotional chord structure, everything in that song, excuse the pun, but I'm so proud of it. And I'm so proud of the reaction to it when people hear it and when people sing along mm. uh, at my shows and stuff, it, it, it's, it's incredible. And it, 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 if there's what it's the, the one thing in my life that I'm so proud of is, is this song. Well, do you know what, just before the interview, I thought, I'll just go back and remind myself. And I just watched the video for the original, which you filmed um, a couple of years ago in Soho. Mm -hmm. And it did make me want to cry. It was just, I felt like I was welling up just watching it because you can see the emotion in your face and why this song means so much to you. Yeah, so I filmed that last year, actually. Oh, that's last year. Literally out of lockdown because, obviously, I had an album recorded of, of music that was released last year but obviously with lockdown and the pandemic and everything that happened in 2020 filming dates uh, tour dates everything just went up into the air or cancelled so we filmed one part of the video in February the part with uh, Tom Margot Marshall um, who's in the video that was all filmed in February but then the parts that I did were filmed a year ago next week and then it was released in August so when I watch that video, it's you know it's a part of history because it was filmed during the pandemic. And when I watch it now and I see people wear masks in the background, I've captured a little bit of history. Mm. But I I really wanted to tell Tom's story. It, when I saw Tom dance on stage, I was so blown away by their their passion. And I approached Tom. I said, I need to I need you to be in my video. I want to tell your story. via my song and the fact that Tom did it was incredible and I'm really really pleased with how the video turned out Um, I'm really proud of it and just to hear that you got emotional watching it is Mm. is it's fantastic it's a proper LGBT anthem isn't it but the reason you're on today though is to talk about the fact that it's had a total makeover this song hasn't it um so do you want to tell us what's happened to the song and um what you're launching a little bit later this month and then we'll hear the song well i'm really really excited to premiere uh, this version of the song on virgin radio pride uh, with yourself emma uh, i am a huge fan of seventh heaven massive fan and of, of course they've worked with legends like steps and you know kylie minogue and here's little old me i sent this song in last year and i said guys i'm an independent artist but i feel as a Jew, that we would really work well. I think Seventh Heaven would really give this song the big glossy makeover that I feel mm. it deserves for the, for the gay clubs and the gay scene. And they got back to me within 15 minutes and they were wow. like, yep, yeah, yeah they, 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 we want to do this. And I was over the moon and it was a really quick turnover because obviously we were in lockdown. So I had to then call my producer in Ireland who had my vocals on his laptop to send my vocals over to Seventh Heaven in England. So my vocals were emailed straight over and then they were sped up a little bit. And then I got the finished version within 48 hours. And I just remember we, it was such a, it came at such a brilliant time because lockdown was so hard and all of a sudden this song landed in my lap. 
and it just it really cheered me up and I've I've held on to it for a year because I really really wanted to release it on the verge of when things start to reopen properly I want to clever I like it yes yeah, you know, I could I could have released it last year, but I, I really held on to it um, and I put my heart and soul into creating a new music video. I worked with the Alpha dancers here in London. They're an LGBTQ plus dance group. And I worked with my friend Dean McDonald, who filmed. He works on RuPaul's Drag Race. And I really, we're editing the music video tomorrow. And um, I just can't, I can't wait to, to, it's a real celebration, this version, whereas the, the, the one that you watched, um, the video that's existing and it's out at the moment, is very, it's kind of very emotionally led, whereas this, this is more uh, of a celebration of, of pride and, and being proud of who you are. Uh, so it's, it's really it's something else. I'm so proud of it and I can't wait for it to get out there and get played in the clubs. We just need those clubs to open. We really so. do, don't we? <laughs> that's not out till July the 16th, is it? But when, how can we get our hands on it, Conleth? So, guys, if you want to uh, pre-order it, just head over to my Twitter page or my Instagram page and the pre-order link for all major online platforms is available in my Instagram bio and my Twitter bio. So get downloading and pre-ordering. I hope you guys love it. Uh, well, it, it is such a proud, well, obviously it's called proud, but it is, a, it is a proper LGBT anthem, isn't it? So how excited are you that um, Seventh Heaven have got their hands on it and totally transformed it into a dance floor hit? I just, they've worked with so many artists that I love, Erasure, uh, Steps, Cher, Ariana Grande. I, I love the fact that they've taken a chance on an independent artist song that's uh, that's really uh, rewarding for me to have have that opportunity and just just to hear it having that seventh heaven makeover that glossy club mix is is really brilliant so uh, the song has been on a real journey it's obviously started out acoustically you know me performing it live then I went into the studio and recorded recorded it acoustically and now it's at its final stage of heaven the big dance mix which i think it's find its home really really it's yeah, this absolutely. is where it belongs and, and tell us a little bit about the video shoot because we, have, we come, haven't seen the video yet because you're just in the middle of editing it at the moment but uh, how did the shoot go at the rvt because that sounds like a lot of fun oh that was brilliant um i was really anxious the night before but obviously because i thought oh i've got 12 dancers i've got makeup artists stylist and cameraman i just don't want track and trace to call people in the morning and people not oh, be able to come on and film so i had all i was like please 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 COVID, just disappear for one day i just can't deal with what if the cameraman calls me at 7am and he's been pinged by i i i just wanted to get there see that everyone was there and just so that I could continue. So once I got into the room and everyone was fine and everyone had arrived, the weight just fell off my shoulders. And then I enjoyed the day so much. I would say it's up there with one of the best days of my life. We filmed the first segment at my old college, Arts Ed in London. So to do that big dance segment in those studios where I trained and it was really nostalgic and brilliant. Then we went straight down to the Waterloo vaults, like so this big graffiti tunnel. So we got to dance outside with the public and that was really electric and then we wrapped it up in the rvt the royal Vauxhall tavern which is such an iconic venue so uh, they they were brilliant they were so supportive they were really helpful they could they couldn't have been more helpful and just to you know be able to now watch the video going forward i can't wait to see the footage of that particular part of the video tomorrow I, I really wanted to kind of get that the it's a sin vibe because I I, re I watched that series and I felt really inspired by that genre 
So I really took a lot of the styling from that and kind of infused it into this video. So it's a really like it's big, it's colourful, it's it's, well, we it's going can't to be, wait to uh, can't wait to blooming see it. Well, you said yeah. it was one of the best days of your life, but then you also talked earlier about performing the original version of it on stage at Pride in London. I mean, that must have been pretty close. What was it like performing a big song like that in front of an LGBT crowd at Pride? Do you know it was it it was really emotional. I I remember being really emotional about to do and I said to the crowd you guys I wrote this yesterday so excuse me if I forget the lyrics I literally <laughs> wrote it I wrote it at my kitchen table less than 24 hours ago there's actually footage of it on YouTube someone filmed it and I they filmed me actually saying that and then you actually get to you, you get to see the reaction of the crowd after so that's when the penny dropped I thought whoa th- th- this could go this could go somewhere and actually I got booked today to perform the Seventh Heaven remix at Pride in London this year. So I'm so excited that I'm and I'm doing it with the Alpha Dancers on stage. So it's it's going from a, you know, performing it with a guitar to now having the full production. And then next year I'm singing it with the London Gay Men's Chorus. Oh, incredible. And how important are those events to you? How important is it to, to get involved in Pride events? Oh, hugely important. I mean, Pride is first and foremost a protest, but it's also a huge celebration and it's an opportunity to be amongst the people you love. It's that safe space for us. And um, it's just a real uh, opportunity to recognise how, how far we've come and actually how far some places and some communities still have to go. So it really, really keeps that conversation afloat. And uh, prides are so important. And obviously with 2020, not really having those pride events. And actually in Northern Ireland, they haven't had the opportunity to celebrate equal marriage yet, really. Oh, cool. You know, so, so, and I don't, I, I think they're having more of a virtual pride this year over Northern Ireland, but I think next year in 2022, hopefully when this is all a thing of the past, Northern Ireland can have the biggest celebration and finally celebrate equal marriage over there. God, wouldn't that be fantastic? And, and yeah. do you see your music as a form of protest? Because you, you're obviously, you know, you write a song like Proud. It's about accepting who you are. It's about fighting for our, our right to not feel shame anymore. You know, it's, do you see a songwriting as protest? Yeah, well, actually, on my EP, Liberty, that came out last year, um, it's five songs and there's not one love song on there. They're all songs of self-acceptance, of um, of protest. And when I listen to them now, it's, you know, I they are very much, uh, you know, parade songs for, for our community. And I'm really proud of the fact that, you know, I haven't like leaned towards the writing about a breakup or anything. I really mm. wanted, I really wanted to, you know, enter a new realm or a kind of area of songwriting and, and stick to that with uh, my first body of work, which, which I did. But I enjoy it. That's where I naturally go when I'm when I'm writing. That's the that's emotively. That's where I kind of that's where my strengths lie. And what, what do you want your songs to achieve? I, like I said, you know, I never, ever in a million years thought that anyone would listen to any of my songs <laughs> and feel the courage to do anything. So the fact that, you know, there is an emerging pattern with a song like Pride and people getting in touch via an online platforms from every corner of the globe to say that you know this song has empowered them has given them courage has helped them to come out is I know it sounds so cheesy but it it, it, obviously I'd love it to be hugely successful in a commercial sense but Mm. the fact that it it hits a nerve and supports people in another way in an emotional way is equally rewarding for me as as a songwriter. 
it must feel incredible to get those emails or tweets or or insta messages from young people going this has helped me come out i mean what's lovely as well i get i get lots of messages from you know straight people who say you know because there's no lyric in the song that suggests it's for the lgbtq community it's just a celebration of who you are Mm -hmm. and that's what the song is is it's for everyone you know no matter what country you're from what nationality are what what language you speak what what sexuality you are it's it's a celebration of who you are do you think other lgbt artists are doing enough to be to be out and proud and to sing about issues that are relevant to our community or do you think it you know it's it's up to them what they're saying about yeah i think i think it's up to every individual artist what they write about and how they choose to express themselves artistically it's obviously brilliant to see so many more artists from our community coming through the ranks and being successful and it's really important like that when you look at that performance at the brit awards of ollie from years oh. and years with elton john like that was that was that was absolutely iconic Wasn't it? yeah and you know you've got lil nas and all, all these different artists you know come really really making their mark it, it's wonderful to see and i feel really inspired by seeing so many um, incredible artists out there. Uh, it, it's a really, really great time, I I feel, for LGBTQ plus artists. Yeah, long way it continue. And let's hope that um, we can see you and Ol Alexander and Elton John and Little Nas X <laughs> all on a Pride stage somewhere this summer. Wouldn't mm, that be amazing? That <laughs> would be the dream, of course. <laughs> yeah, oh, and before you go, you're having a bit of a party in a couple of weeks, aren't you? Obviously, yes. socially distanced and COVID secure, but you're having a big launch party, right? Yes. For all the London listeners, anyone who wants to come down to the two brewers in Clapham, I will be launching the single on stage there at nine o'clock on Saturday the 17th. And it's so annoying because it's two days before apparently social distancing ends, but that's the weekend that comes out and that's the weekend that I want to get up on stage and perform it and celebrate its release. So um, if you're free and you want to come down, make sure you book a table. Fantastic. Well, best of luck with it. And um, yeah, I'm sure it will be an absolutely brilliant success. Thank you. Thanks, Emma. Thank you so much for having me on. And it's been an absolute pleasure. You ready? The Weekend Outing with Emma Goswell. Virgin Radio Pride. Now, if you were lucky enough to listen to last week's show, you'll have heard Ben Carpenter parent of the year in my opinion um he was on to talk about how he has looked after six children with additional and special needs and complex needs he's still trying to raise money for this multi-sensory room that his kids will really benefit from um so please still do go and donate to his just giving page all you need to do is uh, google ben carpenter just giving and it'll take you straight to it you'll also find a lovely picture of him with his family. It's time now to find out all about having a family through surrogacy. You're about to meet two really inspiring gay dads. I thought it was easiest if they introduced themselves. Yeah, of course. So I am Paul Morgan Bentley. And my husband is Robin Morgan Bentley. And we have a 15 month old son called Solly, who is a nursery right now. Otherwise, we would not be able to do this interview because he'd be running around and screeching and. <laughs> I grab some food and putting his hands in the plant behind us and trying to eat the mud. Yes, that's our family. Robin, anything else to add? Yeah, uh, nothing to add. Other than Sonny was born through surrogacy in March 2020, actually on the very first day of the very first lockdown. Um, so uh, we feel lucky for so many reasons to have him, but that's an additional one. 
Gosh. Okay, well, we're going to talk all about surrogacy because it's quite a specific route to go down, isn't it, really? So what, what made you choose that particular route rather than adoption or rather than anything else? We, uh, well, the first thing to say is we wanted children and that's kind of been part of the plan since we very first met. I don't know if we actually talked about it on our first day. day maybe that would have been a bit too much, but I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if it wasn't a topic of conversation you know, pretty early on. We kind of didn't know anything about it, uh, either adoption or surrogacy, really. Um, and, you know, for the first year or two, you, you focus on other things and, um, you know, we didn't really look into it. Um, but then I think we definitely started looking into adoption first when we were considering whether we want, uh, you know, how we might go about having children. I think it's important, actually, to rewind a tiny bit. Mm. Uh, anyone who is LGBT plus who uh, might be listening, um, I think it's a really common theme that one of the hardest things to come to terms with when, when you're younger is the idea that you're never going to be parents. It's, it's something that often your own parents might focus on when you come out. Well, that uh, is very funny you should say that. That's exactly what my father said. It was about the first thing he said was, oh, God, what about the grandchildren? Your sister better have some. <laughs> right, exactly. We feel, I think, um, kind of queer people often feel a lot of pressure. You know, if you're an only child, you can feel mm-hmm. like something out of your control means you're denying your parents' grand- grandchildren. And also, you know, lots of people don't want children, and that's totally fine. But I think both of us, even though we didn't know each other at the time, had a very similar experience of being teenagers and really struggling with that idea that we might never be parents and really kind of mourning that potential fatherhood. And, and I certainly did, and I know we've talked about it and Robin did as well. So, you know, as things change, we didn't, you don't see much of it in the media. We didn't growing up. You're seeing more of it now. But we had got a sense that it might be possible and that gay couples can adopt and that, you know, some gay couples have gone through surrogacy as well. So, yeah, like Robin said, we when we got together, it definitely came up quite early and we were on the same page and both thought we don't know how we're going to go about it, but we'd love to have a child or children. I mean, Robin joked that it was on the first date. Can you remember that when it was? Can you remember that first conversation when what, who brought we it met, up first, um, parenthood? We met in 2014 and um, it was very kind of whirlwind romance. Uh, we, well, we first started chatting on Grindr, um, which came up at our wedding. It did. <laughs> <laughs> a very oh, modern romance. Actually, it was very modern. We, we started chatting on Grindr and then it got a bit quiet and then we matched on Tinder as well. And then we were like, oh, you know, we let's better, go for a coffee up now, yeah. I um, love this. You don't hear many love stories that end with a marriage and a baby starting on Grinder, do you? Well, do you, do you know, you say that, but then actually I do think you're hearing about it more and more. I, yeah. I, when I, when I uh, you know, talk, mentioned that a few years ago, that was people's reaction. But actually now... It does happen quite a lot. I think people We've are... We've been to quite a few Tinder weddings. Yeah, I think people are obviously <laughs> on more online, particularly, in, I, I guess, in the last couple of years as well. Um, it is happening more and more. I'd like to think we were, like, part of the first wave, maybe, of, yeah. uh, of Grindr weddings. But I do think it's... Uh, yeah, I think it's happening. It wasn't our first message on Grindr. Do you want to get married? <laughs> No, to get married and have a baby. <laughs> but obviously somebody brought it up first and the other person was like, thank God, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. You know, I want to be a parent. Yeah, I can't remember. I don't, I don't remember that at all. I can't remember a first conversation. I, I, I think it's been so natural for us and so like part of who we are. And certainly I think both of us, if we'd have had that conversation and the other person had been like, oh, I don't know about kids. I think that, you know, that would have been, 
that would have been a challenge for the relationship. It just feels something natural that's always been part of our kind of progression. It's funny because it's similar, actually, when we got married, neither of us proposed. We kind of had just talked about it for a while and then we ended up um, going for a weekend away and kind of celebrating it and then telling people that we were engaged when we came back. But similarly, I don't remember a kind of specific moment that someone first brought it up. Brought up marriage, yeah. It just, yeah, it's funny. You, I don't forget I admit, these things. Yeah, you do forget it. It just kind of becomes part of Nobody it. got down on one knee. There was no big gesture then. No, no, and I think, you know, maybe maybe it's easier when you're a gay couple to, like, to have that equality, I think, um, when it comes to proposal, but also when it comes to parenting. There isn't, you know, in our family, there isn't a mum who does this and a dad who does that. It's... And equally, there wasn't one person that proposed and another person that accepted. And everything's very equal and shared. And, and we uh, get that question. Other couples yeah. probably get that a lot, just generally about our relationship. Like, who does the laundry? Because this <laughs> idea that there's no woman, so uh, you must be filthy. Or um, you know, <laughs> who, who cares? Who cares who does your laundry? Have you really been asked that? That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, always asked that. that. Who does the cooking? And what um, they're really asking yeah. is who's the woman and who's the man. Yeah because people find it really hard to get their head around, even accepting people, that actually it's just a different type of relationship. And that can be quite freeing, I think, in kind of queer relationships, that you can just set your own, or just you're kind of, um, you can escape those societal pressures that are often just kind of put on, get on straight couples and all couples that have to be these gender roles. I guess, the, is the lesbian equivalent asking who does the DIY, do you think? Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or who's going to wear the white dress at the wedding? You know, oh, yeah. Oh, God. Thank God we don't have to conform to all this nonsense, eh, as queer right. couples. It's <laughs> so refreshing, isn't it? Oh. Um, yeah, we, it was probably a, a year or two after um, we got married that we decided that, and we'd moved into a flat, and we kind of, we quite like to have a project, and we'd like... Right, we'd, we'd, we'd done the flat project and we'd got married and it was like, right, should we actually start thinking about having children now? And so we did loads of, we're both quite kind of nerdy um, in this sense that we just kind of threw ourselves into research. So we were just kind of quite open-minded, um, initially adoption, um, but also at the same time, a colleague of mine who I'm friendly with, he and his husband had announced that they were due to have twins through surrogacy. Wow. It was one embryo and it just split. It was a fluke that it was twins. But, um, and they just spoke in a really lovely way about their relationship with the surrogate who was carrying their child, how they'd met her, how it worked in the UK. And I think before that, we had this idea in our minds, like lots of people do, that surrogacy is something celebrities do in America and it costs 100 grand and it's all about money and all this kind of stuff. And hearing how it worked in the UK was very, very different. Did you tell family that you were planning anything or, or did you just sort of keep it to yourselves as a couple, really? Um, I can remember having kind of very tentative conversations with our families about it. You know, we're very open, very honest people. Um, we, put, you know, we, we, we don't like to hide anything, really, from our families and, and friends. But I didn't, didn't want to get people too involved too early because... As with anything, and I'm sure, you know, all couples have this, you know, we didn't want input really at that stage. We didn't want any, oh, oh, I'm not sure about adoption or, oh, surrogacy, is that legal? Like, you know, we were just Mm. finding stuff out ourselves and figuring out what we wanted to do. So I I, I think we we might have talked about it in very general terms 
early on. But it, I've, I've certainly, I think we've learned over time that it's actually better to kind of keep things to yourself a bit yeah. um, until you know what you want to do before kind of opening it up to... And either way, the process, either adoption or surrogacy, can take a few years. So, you know, we didn't want to you know, have those conversations with people before we knew that it was definitely happening or that we could really do it. In the same way as I think a straight couple wouldn't wouldn't say, oh, you know, from next Friday, we're going to try and get pregnant now, you know. Um, it's kind of, you know, you did it quite... TMI. Yeah. <laughs> Keep it to yourself. Yeah, so, um, Robin, when Paul came back from work and said, I've met someone who has gone through surrogacy and it sounds like an amazing process, what were your thoughts? Did you know much about surrogacy before you embarked on the journey? I definitely started the journey with a lot of misconceptions and mm. a lot of um, misunderstandings about what surrogacy is. And I think, you know, both from a kind of logistical perspective, but also from an ethical perspective, um, I definitely, my only real interaction with surrogacy had been kind of in a very sort of distant kind of, this is what, as Paul just said, and a kind of celebrity, this is what celebrities do, this is how people with lots and lots of money in California um, have families. And I, I suppose my initial thought was, well, isn't adoption the better thing to do? Isn't it the more ethical thing to do? Shouldn't we be doing that instead? I was on a work trip in New York and Paul had come along and I can, I can picture us walking along and, and just having that thought, like, are we being selfish if we don't adopt? And I think to go through that process. We get, people who go through surrogacy can get that question a lot, you know, why didn't you adopt? But no one really asks anyone else, you know, you had a baby naturally, that Mr and Mrs straight couple, why didn't you adopt? And yeah. it's something that, you know, I think we both at the beginning felt quite strongly that we wanted to go down the adoption route. And it was through the research that we changed our mind, or at least decided to be open-minded to surrogacy. And it wasn't out of some kind of desire that we, one of us had to be genetically linked to our child. I think if there was an aspect of feeling selfish about it, it was that finding out, it, I think you can go into things like adoption quite naively and, and just the, the realisation of just how hard it would be, just how troublesome children are who are adopted in the UK. And that absolutely does not mean they don't deserve homes and there are amazing people who adopt children. But we also, the kind of, the idea of having a baby and being able to bond with a baby from birth. We, having read so much and, and we, we listen to those podcasts about adoptive parents really struggling because of the lack of support after the adoption. So feeling like there was loads of scrutiny before and then as soon as the child's with you, when you really need the help in not being there. And there are lots of problems with the adoption system in our, in our country. And then at the same time, hearing about my colleague who's gone through surrogacy, and we joined an organisation called Surrogacy UK, and they had a long waiting list, so you didn't have to pay yet. There, there was a, a fee of about £1,000 to become members, but that's in the future. So you could just apply and then start going to events. And they'd host these social events that were for what were called intended parents, that's the kind of term used, people that want to become parents through surrogacy, and surrogates and their partners or their families, whoever comes along. And, and we started going to these events. And I think if you hear about that, at first it can sound like it's going to be some kind of speed dating event or like a meat market where people are like chasing after surrogates, trying to chat to them. And it wasn't like that at all. The first one we went to, there were no surrogates there, I think. And we realised it was just a community. 
And we spent most of our time chatting with other couples like ourselves, other gay couples, but also lots of straight couples who, because of fertility issues, their only route to parenthood other than adoption would be surrogacy. So that made it sort of normalised, I guess, because previously, I guess people's sort of idea of it is, you know, Elton and David, isn't it? You know, you have to have that sort of money to, to be able to pursue a surrogacy because the rules are very different in this country, aren't they? You can't Exactly. You... It, it's a very different process in the UK and in the US. And in fact, in, in every different country, things are slightly different. The best way to summarise it, I think, is to say that the US is a commercial process. In the UK, it's an altruistic process. So in the US, you will pay a surrogate, usually via an agency, to, to carry a child for you. That doesn't mean that there can't be a great relationship between the parents and the surrogate, and I'm sure in most cases there are. In the UK, it's not legal to pay someone to carry a child for you. And uh, the organisation that we're with, Surrogacy UK, their, their kind of mantra is surrogacy through friendship. And I think that's kind of summarises really well what it's about. It's about... It's all about altruism and it's about um, amazing women who want to help other people, whether that's gay couples or other women who can't carry their own child, um, create a family. And we were really sort of smitten by the ethos of that and the, uh, and the idea of women being so kind and altruistic and being able to create a family through love, basically. It's the ultimate thing to do as a woman, isn't it? I mean, I just can't imagine carrying a child and then giving it to someone else. It's just... When you speak to, well, I speak to a lot of my friends who have given birth and had children. It's, you know, it can be a really traumatic and physically difficult process, can't it? So to go through that for someone else is, you're right, the most altruistic gesture you could possibly do. Sure. And and I think we still kind of, we're still kind of getting our heads around just how amazing it is. And there's, there's so many different things at play. I think the first thing I'd say is, like a lot of women find pregnancy a bit of a pain or you know find it hard or, or, or you know yeah. lots of things to do with and and find it like a you know a means to an enemy having a child there are women and i think surrogates often fit into this category that really enjoy being pregnant yeah. um, and that uh, you know if, if you speak to rachel our friend who carried solly she says she feels amazing while she's pregnant. She loves her body while she's pregnant. She loves being able to sort of sit on the sofa and caress the bump. And she like, she like misses being pregnant. And I, I know for a lot of women, wow. that's really hard to understand because it's, you know, all, all the different, you know, the nausea and the, the side effects. But um, for some women, being pregnant is like, that they like and that they a process that they enjoy yes i guess you couldn't choose to do it if if you're one of the people that was vomiting all day sorry rachel talks about childbirth and how she's just not that bothered by that you know we were there for solly's birth and we at that moment it was really like what is she doing for us why is she going through all this pain for us you we wanted to kind of somehow share the pain it was a really quick labor she's got on the gas and air and we were giving her space and her husband was there supporting her, holding her hand. And it was amazing. But she is kind of, she doesn't hate the labour. So we've heard a bit about the sort of pre-process and why they decided to be parents. And you just started talking about the surrogate mum, Rachel. How, how did you actually meet her and um, decide that she was the right person to carry your child? The first thing to say is there's two types of surrogacy. So we went through what's called gestational surrogacy. So first, we created embryos through IVF with an anonymous egg donor. And then after doing that, Rachel carried Solly, who isn't genetically linked to her, but she carried him. 
some there's also traditional surrogacy where the surrogate's own egg can be used. But just just so people understand that we went through gestational surrogacy. So you had to find yeah. someone to donate the egg as well initially. Yeah, exactly. So some you can have known donors, some a friend or someone who is willing to do that. We um, we went to open days at IVF clinics in London at the time we were living in London through one of those clinics that we decided upon. They put us in touch with an organisation called Altrui, and this organisation recruits egg donors. And something that was really important to us, so in the UK, egg donation is also altruistic. Uh, women get paid expenses. So, mm. for instance, the woman who ended up um, donating eggs for us to have Sorry, she lived in the Midlands and had to get trains back and forth, so her expenses were paid. But crucially for us, one of the things going into surrogacy that we had questions about, we, you have this idea of kind of looking through catalogues of women and picking based on who's the prettiest or who's the cleverest and things like this. And Altrui have a really nice model where they interview you if you want to become parents uh, through mm. egg donation. And then they have people that they that come to them who want to donate eggs. And they then share your details with these women. And we it was a wait, it was three months before we got a call from them to saying, there's this woman in the Midlands, she loves to stand with you, she'd love to help you become parents. And then we were shared her details. Technically, we could have said at that point, we don't like the sound, but please keep looking. But before we even opened the email, we were like, she's clearly an absolute legend. She <laughs> is willing to do this for a gay couple to have a child. So as it happened, she sounded lovely in her profile. And she had really lovely, she'd outlined her reasons for wanting to donate her eggs. And so we said, yeah, let's do it. So that's the first part of the of the journey if you're going through gestational surrogacy often is to find uh, an egg donor uh, and then create embryos. Can I just ask what the legal ramifications are because certainly it's changed in this country if you're a sperm donor um, that child can now find you at the age of 18. Is, is it the same for egg donors? Yes exactly the same so you can uh, be a known egg donor but she in our case um, the egg donor wanted to remain anonymous but it's Solly's legal right when he's 18 to um, be given identifiable information about her so that if he wants to he can find her and meet her if yeah. she's willing to in a way we would absolutely love that we'd love to meet her and give her a huge hug <laughs> we actually what we were allowed to do when she came in to donate the eggs because it's a hard process she had to inject herself with drugs it, it kind of stimulates egg production so she would have produced more eggs that month which can be uncomfortable and cause bloating and all these things for us to have a family so another amazing woman who has helped us but we wrote a card for her we were allowed to write a card for her the day that she came in and we bought her a small present you can't spend too much money because it can't it, it's not allowed to be paid so if it was anything wow. but we bought her a small present and wrote a card and then the nurses in our um IVF clinic described to us how happy she was to receive it and it was a lovely moment hearing about that and then when when Sonny was born she wouldn't have been sent a photo or anything like that, but the clinic were able to tell her, oh, remember you donated your eggs? Well, they've now got, they've now had a baby. And I'm sure, I hope she was happy to hear that news. I'm sure she was. That's exciting. So so she's stage one, and then, then you had to go one. through the process of finding um, someone to carry the child. Yeah, definitely. So the way, there's different ways to do it, but the way we did it was through this organisation, Surrogates UK, which is a non-for-profit organisation that essentially organises events to uh, bring together uh, intended parents, people like us, and, and, and surrogates, people who want to be surrogates. 
it's not legal for, for there to be, or within the organization anyway, there's no matching process. It's very much an organic uh, organic process. So we were, we were literally driving up and down the country, um, going to uh, pubs, different Weatherspoons. We've got a pretty comprehensive knowledge of Weatherspoons around the country now. Um, and you'd go and you'd have a name badge and you'd have a few, you know, a few drinks and maybe something to eat. And there'll be lots of other people there and there'll be lots of other, you know, other gay couples, other straight couples um, who are looking to be a surrogate. And there might be a few surrogates there as well. And the idea is that you become part of the community and get to know everyone. Um, and, then, and then the hope is that you get to know um, a surrogate and that you hit it off with a surrogate. Um, but the important thing is it's always in the woman's power to decide who she wants to help. So, so to give us an example, we met uh, Rachel uh, and her husband, at a uh, social uh, in Matlock, which is near where she lives. We got on really, really well with them. We then saw them again six, eight weeks later with her with her two boys, and we got on really well again. And then a couple of months later than that, we then got a call through the organisation, and it's literally called The Call, which is the organisation saying, a surrogate has got in touch with us and would like to help you. Did you have a party that day? We did. I can remember we were both... This was all, you know, pre-COVID, and we were in our respective offices and on the phone, just like screaming down the phone at each other. I think we got. Um, I remember getting a text from this lovely woman called Dawn, who uh, works with Surrogacy UK, saying, "Are you free for a chat now?" And, and you're like, like oh, oh, "What's this about?" That's a good thing. And we'd had yeah. such a good time with Rachel, and at no point can you say to Rachel or her husband or anyone. So what do you think? Is this going well? Do you want to help us? It's really clear that the ethos is it has to come from the surrogate. And it's to protect the surrogates and make sure that they're not inundated with people trying to convince them to carry a child for them. It's such a serious thing to do that it has to come from the woman. Also, something that can happen in other countries around the world, that it's very controversial surrogacy in some countries, particularly developing countries, where there can be a lot of pressure from men their husbands or their mm. brothers or whoever, for them to make money by carrying a child. And what we've found in the UK is often it's the other way around. And because they're not being paid, um, the men in their lives often don't want them to do it. It's a huge risk. It's a huge health risk that they're taking to do something altruistic. So often surrogates have to spend a lot of time convincing the men in their lives. Yeah, they've got to be a very special individual, haven't they, really? Definitely. And yeah. a special family. You know, Rachel's yeah. husband, James, is a special guy who is so laid back and so chilled out about it all. And you kind of have to be, I think, because he's happy for her to do it. And, you know, um, lots of husbands might not be. And then you start a process, which is a kind of getting to know process, um, which was basically like us as a family dating their family for a period of three months. Um, spending time with all of them and it, I can't stress enough how much you know if a surrogate is married or, ha or has a partner and has children like they all have to be on board it's like a big thing for the family not just mm. for the woman and it, you know it was very important to Rachel that the whole family was on board with this and wanted to help us and we got on well so we spent a lot of weekends together eating Chinese takeaway and <laughs> you know, watching true crime documentaries and... And not, um, talking, about not talking about surrogacy. I mean, we, we also, in that period, you're supposed to talk through the really serious implications, you know, making sure you're on the same page when it comes to possible termination. If you found out that a baby was going to be very, very unwell and, and all those kind of things, you have to have those really serious discussions. 
So finally, Rachel went in and had the procedure and uh, had the eggs from your other donor. And then uh, what was the pregnancy like? Were you involved and did you see her quite a lot through the pregnancy? Yeah, so I mean, we were very lucky in that the first transfer worked because often you can go through all of this and then for some reason the embryo doesn't implant, you know, or, and, and you can go through lots of surrogates go through miscarriages, which can be really tough on yeah. them, of course, and then also on the people who want to become parents. And we were very lucky that it worked first time. Um, and yeah, we, we stayed really, we're really close. She's, Rachel's become one of our best friends. She's got two sons. They're like nephews to us. We love them. Yes, yeah, so throughout the pregnancy, we were really close, spoke all the time. And, you know, to this day, they came and stayed at our house as soon as they could when COVID restrictions eased a bit. And talk us through the, the day of the birth. Presumably you just suddenly get a call, do you, that yeah, um, it's um, happening? So Rachel's based up in Derbyshire and we, we were based in London at the time. And so we decided to rent an Airbnb just nearby where she lives and where she was due to give birth just so we were in the area for when we got the call. The additional challenge was, uh, this was kind of February 2020 and uh, all the COVID stuff was gearing up because the plan had been that we would be there for the birth and we'd met, um, we'd met the head of midwifery at the hospital in Chesterfield and, and explained the, the situation and the plan was that we would, we would both be there and that obviously James, her husband, would be there as her birth, birthing partner as well. But as the days went on and COVID became more serious, it was looking less and less likely that we could take it for granted that we were able to be at the birth. So we were very, very lucky, which went into labour um, just before lots of restrictions were put in place. And we were both able to be there. We were, we were told, can you just wait in the car park until she's in established labour? So we were literally in the car park waiting for her husband to call us to say, come on in. And then we came in. And we were there and we were there and we were the first people to hold Solly and we did skin to skin contacts and it was amazing. And yeah, we became, you know, there's obviously a moment we'll never forget. And then that, uh, the hospital were amazing. And the first night we had two separate rooms, one uh, for us and the baby and Rachel was in a room just down the hall to, on her own. That's what she wanted. She just wanted to kind of recover and sleep sleep yeah in the morning she came over we we all you know she gave the baby cuddles and and we left the hospital and gave Rachel a lift home wow you know we we had moved to this airbnb for a a few weeks we were picking up the kids from the school run with her we were helping her out we were doing the food shops with her we were there the whole time at one point she thought she was going into labor we went around we went on walks while she was counting her contractions and then it eased off so we were kind of fully there and then similarly afterwards this idea that suddenly there wouldn't be much contact feels so alien to us because she's one of our best friends and her family we're so close to her family so we're always in touch oh good how did it feel though to hold your child for the first time paul amazing we were all in the room together and Rachel was lying on the bed and Solly, I cut the cord and then I'd whip my top off and was sitting on a chair holding him. <sighs> he straight away put his thumb in his mouth, which was really cute. And then we switched and Robin held him with his top off. And then suddenly we looked down and realised that Solly had pooed all over Robin's arm. <laughs> <laughs> and the first poo is like really black, tarry, uh, what's it called? Maconia, yeah. And then and Rachel like, had cuddles and James had cuddles and it was a really emotional moment. We were yeah, all crying. And what's the last year been like then, being parents? Oh, it's been the best. 
it's obviously been uh, for everyone a, a you know a challenging time and things have been different but we've actually been very grateful in many ways for some of the the alterations to life that have had to be made because of covid so uh, we took shared parental leave we did half of the year each but when the other person was working he was just in the next room on, on the computer so we feel like we because of covid we both got the year really to spend at home in a little cocoon the three of us to get to know each other and and um you know learn how to how to do it we didn't have a lot of external help we didn't have a lot of meddling from other people you go through this whole process and it's so unusual for most people but actually you have a baby and it's we've got friends with with little babies as well and it's just exactly the same as soon as you have the baby the bonding's the same the you're, you're doing the milk feeds you're doing the burping you're doing the changing nappies they get a bit older you, they start sleeping better at night. you do you have all the same pretty boring and you know mundane abnormal issues that other parents with a baby have and you go through all of those amazing things and it doesn't feel any different well it isn't any different your parents you're a beautiful family but have you had any negativity have you had any bad reactions from people very little um quite a bit of ignorance and who's the dad uh, so you get a lot who's the dad dad? yeah or who's the real dad and then we say oh no we're both the dads and they're like yeah yeah but you know what we mean who's the real dad find that well we're kind of used to it but that there's a lot of ignorance or a lot of expectation that there will be a woman that there'll be a mother so going to uh, you know health appointments and getting things like oh it's daddy daycare today or or is mum having a rest at home and just like the assumption that there's a mum at home and, and that kind of stuff but but that's actually that you know we've got friends a straight couple who have a baby who's a bit younger than Solly and they've shared parental leave and even though we think of ourselves as an equal society when it comes to sex and gender we're not when it comes to children and he he went to mm. a, a health visitor appointment the other day and they were shocked they were like where's the mother as if it was a safeguarding issue that the mother wasn't there and he was like well she's back at work now she's nine months old our daughter and I'm now on leave and so actually that kind of issue the kind of where's mummy issue is really one that is a societal problem that isn't just to do with LGBT plus parents it's to do with how we see women and men something I really want to say about the that's really important to us about the who's the dad question yeah um, for us obviously only one of us could be genetic Solly's genetic father and I'm not Solly's genetic father and I remember listening to podcasts and, and things before where other gay dads who didn't have the genetic link would say I promise you when you have that baby it makes no difference like you just bond with this baby and and I can't stress enough how true that is and how the idea that I could love a child any more than I love Solly is just completely ridiculous to me. Well, it sounds like a, a, a beautiful, beautiful family and a beautiful love story, essentially. But what, what advice would you give to people thinking, oh, now I'm coming around to the idea of surrogacy, actually? It's in, I mean, the way you've described the process, it, does, it sounds incredibly ethical and really women-centred which is really lovely to hear so but what advice would you give to people thinking about going on that journey? I think the first thing is that if you want to do it in an ethical way you absolutely can it we've been lucky in that Rachel picked us quite quickly the first transfer worked and even with all of that it was a long process so acknowledging that it doesn't work as quickly for all people is important but also something that we really found was important was celebrating each little victory 
So, you know, we went to our first event. Okay, let's have a bottle of wine and or let's get takeaway. You know, we've had the call from the egg donation agency. Let's celebrate that. So along the way, we kind of celebrated each milestone, which was really, really important to us. Yeah, resilience. Resilience is really important. I think it's the same for a lot of couples, however you're having children. You know, yeah, for some couples, it's very quick and easy. But for most people, and, um, you know, maybe particularly people that are in, in their 30s, you need resilience when you're having a child. Just be prepared to invest time. And what about your parents? Do, are they active grandparents? Are they thrilled and are, are they involved? They are the happiest people ever. Um, <laughs> they, obviously, uh, surrogacy doesn't just create families, doesn't just create children, it also creates grandchildren and nieces and nephews and mm. children. So he actually has been spending time uh, over the last few weeks with his great grandma, who's 94, you know, an, an immigrant from Germany, very, very traditional values. And it's taken her uh, a while to get her head around everything, uh, understandably, but just seeing her, the joy that he brings her now, you know, she's housebound, um, she's on, you know, COVID has um, affected her quite significantly, but just spending half an hour with Solly, it really is the highlight of her week. Solly brings us so much joy, but also everyone else. And this is all thanks to Rachel and the other woman who helped us, who hopefully one day we'll meet. And we should say, Solly, just to give a bit of an insight to him, he is a hilarious kid. And it's funny when you have, you know, you watch their develop, their, their personalities develop, and he is just turning into, you can just see, he's like, he's so sociable. We, we drop him off at nursery, and he like, he's walking us, he toddles in. And we like joke that he like goes straight to this table where all the other kids are, and he can't talk yet. But like, he's walking in this way that's like, all right, what's everyone been up to? What you've all been doing? He's like so social, points to everything, points to all the food. He's very smiley and, so, and, he, and he like dances to music all the time. And he is just funny. I think the other piece of advice is it's just, it's worth it. They're so, he's so gorgeous and mm. he brings all of us loads and loads of joy. It's I feel like it. I'm going to have a tear in my eye now. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. I just wanted to end actually with a story because um, I obviously I have been snooping you on Twitter a little bit um, about what happened with nursery on Father's Day because I thought that was a beautiful thing. Solly came home, uh, obviously Father's Day is a Sunday, so he came home from nursery on the Friday with two cards and you know it's not something that we preempted or even really thought about but the uh, amazing people at the nursery had thought well Solly's got two dads so let's make two cards for him so uh, yeah, he has. it's kind of the opposite, isn't it, of the who's the dad question. It was just implicit. I mean, we both go, you know, one of us takes him, one of us picks him up. They understand he's got two dads, and it's exactly the right way to deal with any kind of different family off their own, their own kind of backs. Their own, they just decided to do it, and it was just the total understanding he's got two dads. Here are two cards, obviously, for Father's Day. It was. I don't think it was a big deal for them, but it was a big deal for us. Yeah, it was just such a simple thing to do, wasn't it, really? But as he said, it's just that that having that tolerance and understanding from everyone around you mean, means so much, doesn't it? And that and that tolerance and understanding really outweighs any negativity or discrimination that we find. And I think it's important to highlight that, you know, how amazingly advanced gay rights are in the UK anyway, or for us, in our experience anyway. Yeah, you have some funny comments and some funny looks and, and some stupid things people say, but overwhelmingly there is so much acceptance and so much love for us as a family and we're really grateful for that 
Yeah. Well, I think the more families that speak out like you and just show the love and just show how normally it is, how normal it is and what a wonderful family you are, the better, really, because it's all about just being visible, isn't it? And you're a very great, visible LGBT family, aren't you? That's really nice of you to say, because, you know, it can feel self-indulgent sometimes, to be honest, when you post pictures of your family on Twitter. And, but it's really it feels really important to us. We want people to see two dads and a baby when they go through their day and they're scrolling on their phones, we think it's important for us to be visible. So other people might have the luxury of being able to say, oh, I'm very private and I don't like to post things about myself on, online. We feel it's our responsibility in lots of ways. Absolutely. Well, send me a picture and I'll be tweeting it as well and celebrating your wonderful family. Thank you so much for Thank having you us. so much, Emma. You ready? The Weekend Outing with Emma Goswell. Virgin Radio Pride. And it's time to go to Wales because we're going to find out all about the LGBT plus Cymru helpline and counselling service with the woman that put it together it's Debbie Lane. Debbie thanks for joining me. Hi and a a sunny welcome from Wales and thank you for inviting me very happy to be here. Whereabouts are you in the beautiful country of Wales? Well I am actually presently I'm working from uh, home so I'm in Llanelli but I do have beautiful views from where I am, sort of over the Gower, which is kind of over Swansea. So very, very nice indeed. I'm, I'm oh, very lucky. <laughs> beautiful part of the world. I love a holiday in the Mumbles near Swansea. Yeah, it's, it's lovely here. I'm very friendly too. So if you come, you'll always get a warm welcome. Oh, excellent. Right. Well, let's talk about the helpline then. Um, it was a while ago that you set it up, wasn't it? And uh, what led you to setting it up in the first place? Gosh, yeah. Um, There's quite a big question um but a good question I set it up in 2004 so it's been going for what 17 years now um as I wanted uh, to provide well a confidential service professional service to support people uh, LGBT plus people with issues I think I, it, it was driven and I think this is why the charity is so important to me it was driven I was brought up in a just say had a very homophobic father that sort of taught me at a young age that gay people should be burnt at the stake and uh, put on an island and left alone how we basically shouldn't exist it was quite frightening was um, this before he even knew that you were gay he would just, yes, just his yeah. opinions that he would voice about gay people yeah um but very much so and I remember it from quite a young age um him voicing those opinions and and sort of saying in God's name and all that type of thing as well which was a little bit disturbing but but mm. He, he wasn't a particularly very nice man. I was brought up in domestic violence as well, which wasn't very pleasant. But I do remember him just sort of really not liking gay people. Also quite racist as well in some of the comments that, that he made. Um, however, very intense on LGBT and his opinions, which basically affected me because I knew from a young age of about six, five, six, that I was different. I just just knew or felt it. I, you know, everyone was kind of, girls were, so say, attracted to boys and boys were attracted to girls and there was none of this, you know, different referencing. And I kind of preferred to play football and have action men, I suppose quite typical really back yeah. then. And, you know, d- didn't want the sort of Barbie doll type, type things and didn't really know what was happening to me or what it was called or anything like that apart from listening to my father preach to me until I was about nine and I thought oh my god I must be gay oh my I don't want to be I don't want to be evil I don't want this don't want that growing up as well and going through school and 
we have section 28 um, as, as well then and teachers teachers are just frightened to death to mention the word gay or lesbian or anything you know trans it just didn't get mentioned in school so you've got school not mentioning it you've got your dad mentioning it in the most negative terms possible what sort of effect does that have on you mentally well, it, it does it has a huge effect on you because there's no positive reference point you know you've got the teachers laughing or actually telling a child off don't say that you know it's like reinforcing what my father was saying and I remember when I was about 11 or 12 there was the uh, sex and relationships education I was just hoping some mention would be there oh please please you know please God mention something but absolutely zilp so again that mm. just reinforced it was um correct what what everyone was saying and it did have effect on my education it did have effect on my friendships because how can you be friends with somebody if you can't be honest with them because mm. you've got this thing going on inside of you that you feel so different and it wasn't until later life actually that I got my education uh, much later in life but um because you don't feel that you deserve it you don't feel that you're that you're worth living really or, or that you des deserve anything nice let alone an education or, or a fantastic job or anything like that and and that's how it kind of affected me and that's just kind of a little bit about my story to sort of get across really how important this charity was for me to set up to make sure that I went through that other people ha didn't have to go through it alone because it's the most isolating thing ever isn't it if you're you literally feel like you're the only person that is that different and you can't relate to anyone else at your school yeah I think particularly you know from the sort of age that I come from I'm well 57 this this year and um, well next month actually I'm 57 and you know it, it, in the sort of circles you you know you did hear of families sending people away and things like that to get Gosh. cured and it, it was frightening so I, I didn't want to be that way I, I just wanted to sort of grow up being heterosexual then if you like and um which obviously will affect your mental health if you're pretending to be a sexual orientation that that, that that you're not but yeah eventually I did sort of come through that and I think it came to the point where I was contemplating if you like suicide and, and then I decided to in my late 20s to actually go and see a psychologist which I did and that basically was the beginning of of my life if I can put it that way I uh, you know from living life asleep or dead whichever way you want to call it to to them being encouraged to be me the psychologist was absolutely fantastic went through a, you know a few years of, of therapy and I've got a very happy life now I must say to everyone I'm very happy married I have a daughter you, you know everything's really good in my life and because I'm able to be me and I think going back to the helpline again this is what I wanted to create was to give that support and help and professional help not just you know sorry when I say not just having a chat on the phone having a chat on the phone is really important mm. um but to have that professional guidance and if you like with qualified counsellors and signposting people to different organizations that that can help them with their needs so whether they're experiencing hate crime whether they've got a broken relationship because they can't talk to anyone about it because they're estranged from their family you know a, a different range of areas really to be able to provide help and support well thank god you went to see that counselor when you did but i mean that yeah. still would have been like over 10 years of like very formative years in your childhood where you thought that you were wrong you thought that you were evil all of these things yeah. that you've been told mm -hmm. so for someone simply to just turn around and go there's nothing wrong with you you are normal live your life yeah. and celebrate it must have been hugely liberating uh, well actually i i remember it quite vividly yeah, I, bet. I was in cardiff 
in her office. There was, there was 50 minutes for the session. And I can remember I was 10 minutes into the session and I was trying to, you know, pluck up the courage to say, I'm gay. Mm. <laughs> or I think I'm gay or I'm gay. And it was really, it was like, if you can imagine sort of standing on the edge of a cliff and sort of not knowing whether to, I don't mean literally to commit suicide now, but mm. the kind of the tummy go overs, if you, if, if you like, the nervousness, the anxiousness of being able to come out and then having to jump and think everything's going to be okay when you say that you're gay. And, and I was kind of having those type of uh, intense anxiety type feelings. And when I did say I'm gay, she didn't bring out the Bible or anything like that to bash me over the head with it or walk out of the room or tell me to leave immediately um, because she didn't want evil in her office. And absolute, she was like, okay, yeah, well, that, that, that's great. Yeah, that's normal. She actually used the word normal. Yep. You know, and, and it was like, that was the first positive reference of being gay I ever, ever experienced in my life. And um, I was 29 years old then, and that was the first 20, time. 29. So yeah. when I thought you said you were early, I thought you meant you were early 20s. 29. So that's a long time. That's 20 years of um, being in the closet and getting yeah, the wrong yeah. messages. Yeah, it, it, it's wrong messages all the way through. Particularly when I was a teenager, it was bad to get divorced. Let, you know, to come from a single family, it was really yeah. kind of looked down on, let, let alone you know, being gay, it, it, it really was different times. But, you know, I, I've developed and reflected and I've learned a lot. And I think the work that we're doing now, actually one of the, 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 the new projects that I'm working on is called the Swansea Rainbow Counselling Centre. Mm. Because what that does, it's uh, what we call systemic family counselling. So, because sadly, uh, Emma, even today, people can get rejected. Parents can not understand LGBT plus issues. And so we want to help those families. And I think I've got a particular desire in that as well myself because of obviously my background. So if you've got somebody, like we've got lots of um, young trans clients at the moment, uh, particularly since the pandemic, I think a lot of people being confined in spaces and things and not allowed to go out. It's been very difficult for a lot of people, hasn't it? Yeah. Especially young trans kids who may have been misgendered or dead named, you know, through the whole pandemic. That, Can you imagine? That, absolutely so what's been happening a lot a lot of young people have been coming out to their parents and yeah. parents kind of not knowing what to do so th this is the reason for the systemic family counseling where we counsel all the individual members of the family and then bring them together at the end you know because it's all about a journey it's all about information knowledge things like that because when you have no knowledge of something people can kind of freak out and think oh my god what quite often the parents will say, what have I done wrong? You know, did I drink too much? Did I have a, too many nights out or whatever it might be? And, and it's nothing at all, as you, as you know, to do to do with that. So it's kind of blaming themselves and rather than actually looking at the journey that, that the whole family need to go on. Really. It's great that you're doing all family counselling then, because you're right. It's um, the parents quite often need the education and understanding more yeah. than the, the young person possibly. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of a, you know, a journey all around because the young person can quite often be nervous, frightened, scared. You know, it's a fear of the unknown. They know they feel different. They know, you know, they can feel the dysphoria. They, and, and, and there's so much information, really, um, that needs to be given, not just to that, you know, trans person, but the family as well. So we've got like um, information guidance sheets that we give out guidance and knowledge, if you like, to the parents guidance and knowledge to to the young trans person and simple things like trans proofing your house 
people think, what's trans proof in your house? <laughs> so if the young person keeps seeing lots of photographs of themselves in, in, in what they see as the dead, you know, the dead person, then if you like, or the, mm. the person that they don't identify with, it's not to sort of just throw those photographs away, because obviously they mean a lot to the parents, you know, because that's been their life journey, if, if you like, in the way that they've seen life, but to get like a special memory box and just put them away in the box for now doesn't mean to say that you're throwing them away, but it's to help the parents to transproof the house, to help the young person on their journey to identify and to find out who they are and have more knowledge and more confidence and to have a happy ending, if, if you like, because it's a, it's a long journey for a young person or any person uh, going through a transition or uh, understanding issues and gaining that knowledge. It is a long journey. And I think by having those simple things to help them where they haven't got pictures kind of in their face <laughs> everywhere, reminding them of the past when they're looking at the present and the future can help. So it, it's things like that, you know, helping the families transproof the house to create a happy ending for all. And, and I have to say, I'm quite privileged in my role because I do get to see the end of some people's tunnels, which is, I can only describe it as like winning the lottery when you see oh. somebody so happy and the family happy and accepting and going out there being proud on pride days and yay you know it's just <laughs> wonderful and it was very important for you wasn't it that it wasn't just called lgbt why was that well i think it's very important to me because our allies are so important and um, one of the reasons i think or i believe why we are where we are today with whether that's employment law whether that's with marriage with the change of the time so to speak is because of our allies um, supporting us and helping us there. So I think it's important to recognize that and to embrace that. So with the Swansea Rainbow Counseling Center, the name itself is all embracing. And even though it is a project run by the LGBT Cymru Helpline and Counseling Service, it, it's, it's just there so people know it's not just for LGBT plus people, it's mm. for you know allies, as long as you're not homophobic, biphobic or transphobic, you can come and use our services, which are subsidized services, because there's a lot of people, if not most people actually use our service that cannot afford um, private access to mental health care. So what we do here in Swansea is that if people are on benefits, things like that, it's free of charge. And these are qualified counselors now. If people are working and they then they pay a £10 donation. Now, obviously, that's still far cheaper than £45. I mean, if you look at systemic family counselling... And the rest, yeah. You know, that could be £150 an hour. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Let okay. them free of charge. So, you, you, you know, uh, we are lottery-funded as, as well, and the Welsh Government have also been supportive um, in providing funds. Plus, also, the Swansea Council are just absolutely amazing with their support for LGBT+. Plus. That's they, they good, because I'm guessing there's a huge demand for your service, though. I mean, there's been, you know, the pandemic's made everything a bit worse and it's had real mental health repercussions. So have you seen, like, a spike in your demand for your services? Well, it's increased tenfold oh, uh, since COVID hit. It really has increased a lot. We're employing more staff, we're engaging more counsellors, um, we've got lots of plans for the future to be able to help people. And, you know, just a little bit of um, an opportunity to, to, to make an, an advert then, if you like, that we do rely on funding and donations. It does help people bring balance, if you like, healthy balance and confidence back into their life and back into the workplace as well. Mm -hmm. So please, if you can afford to donate, please go onto the website. 
it's under the kindness button or donation button because literally every penny does go into the charity it's a non-profit um, yeah. organization tell us the website then when we can repeat it again at the end yeah lgbtcumry.org.uk so if you can go on there and donate we are really grateful for your donations also on there there is an opportunity to if you buy a lot of stuff from amazon for example you can log on to amazon smile that gives a, a, a small percentage i think it's one pence in every pound or there's also the rainbow lottery where 50 percent of the, the one pound we i think you get an opportunity to to win a, a few thousand anyway it's a it's a new gay rainbow lottery that started well, i've not support. heard of that I need, I brought, yeah i'm it, gonna do the lottery might as well do a gay one but <laughs> well, it's the gay lottery anyway called the rainbow lottery and um, all the, the proceeds go to different uh, LGBT plus charities across the UK, at 50% of their proceeds. So, so if you log on to the Rainbow Lottery, but you have to specifically go uh, to say that you want to sponsor or buy a ticket and sponsor the LGBT Cymru Helpline. But what I would say, obviously, you know, if you do go on there, please, you know, play safely, if I can put it that way. Don't, don't, yeah. don't get addicted to it and, you know, get into financial trouble or anything but but it would be great if people want to make a donation they, they, they can have a chance of, of winning something as well good plan um so your swansea rainbow counseling center i guess that is specifically for people in swansea but the helpline is for people all over wales right since covid hit we've been delivering virtual counseling most of the sessions probably about 85 percent of the sessions that we deliver at the moment are virtually about five percent are delivered via telephone because people don't want to use a video platform or, yeah. or may not have the facilities you know at their end and 10 percent of face-to-face but is it people all over wales people all over wales yeah was... and anyone who, who lives in wales as a resident of wales can call the 0800 number which you'll find on the website phone lines are open every monday 7 to 9 p.m uh, for the lgbt Cymru helpline uh, where you get get to speak to an operator but if you ring outside of those times you leave a message somebody will get back to you within 48 hours. And what sort of things are young people ringing up about these days? Um, well, with young people, again, since COVID hit, it's to do with coming out issues. So coming out as trans, coming out as, you know, LGBT, it's issues like that. It's also depression, anxiety, depression as well. That's with the young people. And I think, you know, COVID has made us all a little bit down, really. <laughs> you know, it's not what we've been used to, is it, being confined in the house? And mm. not, But not it's not just aimed things. at young people, is it? So anybody can ring the helpline. Yeah, a, a, anybody can ring. And, and there's quite a lot of loneliness calls, people feeling lonely, isolated, because they're living on their own. So we do try to help sometimes if we've got enough volunteers. So anyone who wants to volunteer to be a support buddy, so that's not a qualified counsellor or anything, it's just somebody to ring, you know, have a chat with and pre-covid support buddies might meet up with people once once a month just for a cup of coffee in you know in town or something like that wherever they live but but it's emphasized they're not a qualified counselor they're just um an, a nice person that wants to help out if, if somebody's you know feeling lonely make a massive difference to people though can't it especially at the moment when people are isolated so let's hear some of your success stories then have you managed to meet up with any of your your callers or people that you've helped counsel and seen real changes in people's lives well there's one i mean i started working sorry to talk about young people a lot but i, I suppose um i've been doing a lot of work recently especially with the amount of calls coming in from young people over the past mm. uh, 18 months but I remember one person 
who came to us quite a few years ago um, in 2014. Um, we set up a group called Good Vibes. And the thing that I love about Good Vibes is uh, we set it up as a, a youth LGBT forum and they, the, the, the actual members, the young people, named it Good Vibes because that's how they felt when they went along to it. It, it. it gave them good vibes. So, so, so the name stuck and, it, and it's still there now. But there was this young trans person uh, who came who, who wasn't in a very good way, didn't really want to get up in the morning, um, had nothing to get up for, you know, is what they believed. And then in 2017, he was being presented at Buckingham Palace with Young Person of the Year Award. So going from not wanting to wake up in the morning to, to that was, oh, my God. Because not, not all of us could go. There was only two people allowed to, to, to go with him to Buckingham Palace. And, and obviously everybody wanted to go because they were yeah. so happy for him, you know. And I can remember kind of listening to, to, to what was happening back in the um, office and we we're all kind of screaming and like, wow, this is amazing, because <laughs> we all knew his story. Yeah. Um, and, and also a uh, point to note there that I did help him get um, what you call a therapy dog. So uh, with regards to a therapy dog, it's like unconditional love. Um, and it really does help because if you if you're a young person or any you're young or old, it doesn't matter really any age group. It's amazing how having a dog can make such a difference to your life, you know, because it is it's unconditional love, isn't it? For, what a for, brilliant for idea. Yeah. yeah. And that is just enhanced so many people's lives really I mean obviously it's got to be appropriate for them to be able to have a dog and the charity goes out to sort of view everything and check everything you can't just automatically get a dog you know but after all those checks and things um yeah it, it, it's great and he he is thriving um totally changed his life and um so that's one success story but there there are quite a few and I mean obviously from a certain degree I've, I've, you know, I've got to go careful because obviously it's confidential, but I know that one was obviously in the newspaper and on the news and radio in 2017 at Buckingham Palace. So it was quite public, if you like. But we, we do get lots of feedback from emails, or I do, uh, and the counselling coordinator that works for the helpline saying, thank you. It's been a lifesaver. It's changed my life. Also, sadly, with some of the COVID deaths that's happened, we, we do bereavement counselling as well and uh, I'm, I'm glad to say that we've been able to help people that have suffered you know losing people that have been very close to them and they've been very grateful. I have to say Debbie I could probably talk to you all, all day but it sounds like you have probably saved hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in the LGBT community in Wales and, and enriched their lives so on behalf of all of them thank you so much for setting up this helpline and doing so much work for our community. Well, you're more than welcome. It's it, it's my pleasure, and and thank you again, Emma, for thinking of me and making contact with me. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. You deserve it, right? Just go out the website one more time. Then, if anyone's in Wales and wants help, Debbie can offer it. What's the website again? Okay, the website is www.lgbtcumry.org.uk. And please, if you are able to afford a donation, it would be really gratefully, gratefully received because it does help many hundreds of people thank you a big thank you to debbie lane my last guest and if you want to find out more about the helpline if you're perhaps in wales or thereabouts and are struggling a little bit or maybe you just want to donate and help them um, the website again is lgbtcumry.org.uk um, and if you're not welsh and you don't know how to spell cymru it's with a u 
Don't worry, I got it wrong the first few times as well. C-Y-M-R-U, it's how you spell Cymru. Uh, so lgbtcymru.org.uk. Blimey, is that the end of another show already? I don't know where the time goes. Thank you so much for your company this evening. Um, hope you've enjoyed the weekend outing with me, Emma Goswell. Next week, weirdly, we are returning to Wales again uh, because I'll be speaking to a young trans boy from Caerphilly. He's 14. I'll be also chatting to his mum as well and finding out what it's like to come out as trans when you're still at school. Hopefully you'll be able to join me next week as well. 